0: Welcome to the Cotkey Ride Home for Friday, November 12th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird today. White-tailed deer in America have been found to be transmitting SARS-CoV-2 among each other in higher-than-expected rates. Plus, next week will be the century's longest partial lunar eclipse. A new species of dinosaur was discovered on the Isle of Wight. And it's not just shipping delays to be concerned with this holiday season. Now we have a shortage of Santas. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. From apes getting a special type of COVID-19 vaccine to the rare cases of pet dogs and cats becoming infected with the virus, we've heard stories here and there about animals, mostly domesticated and zoo or farm-dwelling ones, catching COVID-19 from humans. But a new, not-yet-peer-reviewed study shows that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly among white-tailed deer. Quoting NPR, Since SARS-CoV-2 first emerged, there have been several signs that white-tailed deer would be highly susceptible to the virus, and that many of these animals were catching it across the country. In September of last year, computer models suggested SARS-CoV-2 could easily bind to and enter the deer's cells. A recent survey of white-tailed deer in the Northeast and Midwest found that 40% of them had antibodies against SARS-CoV-2. Now, veterinarians at Pennsylvania State University have found active SARS-CoV-2 infections in at least 30% of deer tested across Iowa during 2020. Their study published Online last week suggests that white tailed deer could become what's known as a reservoir for SARS CoV 2. That is, the animals could carry the virus indefinitely and spread it back to humans periodically. End quote. Kristen Alshuler, a wildlife disease ecologist unaffiliated with the study, further explained a reservoir to Inverse, quote, a reservoir is any person, animal, or environment where the virus circulates and multiplies that is capable of passing the virus to another person or animal, end quote. While most animals who have caught COVID-19 thus far were thought to have become infected by a nearby human, the white-tailed deer finding is alarming because it's clearly circulating among the deer. They're spreading it to each other, rather, than just humans infecting each of them, although it is spread to them by humans to begin with. And though the possibility of spread from deer back to humans is technically possible, there's no record of it just yet, and scientists are reiterating that we don't know yet if that could be the case. New Center Maine spoke to a white-tailed deer biologist at their state's Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife, who told them, quote, we are not aware of any particular need for concern yet. There's no documented case of a hunter or any other person contracting COVID from a deer that either got the antibodies or the virus, end quote. And that said, the biologist they spoke to, Nathan Bieber, recommended hunters wear gloves and possibly masks while hunting and continue safe meat handling and cooking practices. But even if humans aren't catching it from white-tailed deer in the wild, the fact that they would be serving as a reservoir gives even more credence to COVID becoming endemic rather than ever being fully eradicated. Tony Goldberg, a veterinarian at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, told Inverse, quote, In general, if animals become a reservoir for a human pathogen, it means it becomes vastly more complex to control that pathogen. While other diseases like yellow fever and West Nile have seen human-animal spillover, it's still rare to to see this happen outside of mosquito-borne diseases, Goldberg says. I can't honestly think of a perfectly parallel scenario where that happened before, end quote." And from NPR, quote, another concern, says virologist Linda Safe at Ohio State University's College of Veterinary Medicine, is that SARS-CoV-2 could evolve inside the deer and create new strains of the virus. Researchers have already documented such a scenario with minks on farms in the Netherlands and Poland, she points out. In those studies, farm workers passed the virus onto captive animals. As the virus spread through the minks, it mutated and created new variants. These new versions of the virus then spilled back to the humans, the researchers report end quote. So yeah, that is concerning. Safe and others say we need to be devoting more resources to studying the instances of COVID-19 in wildlife so that we can stay vigilant about future spread and variants, an endeavor that was throttled during the pandemic due to testing reagents needing to be saved for humans. And what makes white-tailed deer specifically so susceptible to covid Some animals, like big cats, apes, sea otters, and minks, have proven susceptible to varying degrees, but not others, like rats. What makes some species susceptible and others not? Quoting again from Inverse, it has to do with the ACE2 receptor protein, which is on the surface of cells. The spike protein of SARS-CoV-2 binds to this protein receptor in humans and animals, allowing the virus to infect the host and replicate. Some animals' receptors bind better to SARS-CoV-2. While many animals can contract COVID-19, most aren't good at transmitting COVID-19, Goldberg explains. Some animals, like the white-tailed deer, can transmit to other members of their own species. Other animals, like minks, can transmit to humans, but the minks who have transmitted the disease have only been observed in farms, not out in the wild, according to Goldberg. In farms, where large clusters of minks live in close quarters, transmission is likelier to occur than in the wild, end quote. And for the record, there's no indication that the white-tailed deer are getting particularly sick or dying from the virus, they're just spreading it a bunch to each other. And as such, it might just burn out among them without us ever having to worry about it spreading back to us, but it's best we keep researching as opposed to just making that assumption. Mark your calendars for this coming Thursday night because we are about to witness the longest partial lunar eclipse of the century. Lunar eclipses typically last around an hour or less. The big total lunar eclipse back in 2018, which according to NASA's statistics will be the longest total lunar eclipse of the 21st century, was just over an hour and a half long. This partial lunar eclipse coming up on November 18th and 19th will last for 3 hours and 28 minutes. And it's not just the longest of this century. It's also the longest partial lunar eclipse in 580 years. Quoting CNET, Lunar eclipses don't have the same dramatic appearance as a solar eclipse, where it looks like someone's carving a black hole out of the side of the sun. During a lunar eclipse, the moon darkens and sometimes takes on a reddish color. For a partial eclipse, Earth's shadow doesn't completely cover the moon. Partial eclipses are still fantastic experiences. Partial lunar eclipses might not be quite as spectacular as total lunar eclipses where the moon is completely covered in Earth's shadow, but they occur more frequently, NASA said in a sky-watching update, and that just means more opportunities to witness little changes in our solar system that sometimes occur right before our eyes end quote. And will you actually be able to witness it? As always, weather will be a consideration, but it should be visible to most of the globe. NASA describes it as, quote, visible from any location where the moon appears above the horizon during the eclipse, end quote. Timing-wise, I'll put a link in the show notes to a page on timeanddate.com, which gives you detailed information and a map showing when the eclipse begins, ends, and reaches its maximum anywhere on Earth. But for quick reference, the max will be at about 7 a.m. in the United Kingdom, around 4 a.m. on the east coast of the United States, and about 1 a.m. on the west coast. Timeanddate.com will also be live streaming the partial lunar eclipse, as will the virtual telescope project, which will have live commentary from astrophysicist Gianluca Masi. So, fingers crossed for clear skies next Thursday night into Friday morning. A new species of dinosaur just dropped in England, which seems to be having a little bit of a dino-fossil renaissance. The new dinosaur, dubbed Brightstonius simensi, after the village of Brightstone near the excavation site, was discovered by retired general practitioner Jeremy Lockwood, who is now studying for a PhD at the University of Portsmouth, and spent lockdown cataloging iguanodon bones discovered on the Isle of Wight. It was in the collections from the Natural History Museum in London and the Dinosaur Isle Museum on the Isle of Wight that Lockwood found a unique-looking specimen which had been in storage since 1978. It was originally found by amateur collector Keith Simmons, hence the Simmonsy part of the brightstonius Simmonsy's name. The skull had several features that marked it apart from the two types of dinosaurs previously found on the Isle of Wight, Iguanodon bernisartensis and Mantellosaurus atherfieldensis. Lockwood told The Guardian, quote, The number of teeth was a sign. Mantellosaurus has 23 or 24, but this has 28. It also had a bulbous nose, whereas the other species have very straight noses. Altogether, those and other small differences made it very obviously a new species, end quote. The new dinosaur, Brightstonius cemenzi, was also herbivorous and would have been about 8 meters long, or over 26 feet. Quoting again from The Guardian, The discovery of this new species suggests that there were far more iguanodontian dinosaurs in the early Cretaceous of the United Kingdom than previously thought, and that a long-standing convention of assigning fossils found on the Isle of Wight to either the iguanodon or mantelosaurus species should be reconsidered. It seems so unlikely to just have two animals being exactly the same for millions of years without change, said Lockwood. Lockwood, who was involved in the discovery of another new species known as the hell heron, said that the latest discoveries showed British dinosaurs were not done and dusted, end quote. Last year, around this time, I talked about all the creative ways that Santa Claus' impersonators were pivoting to virtual visits. From pre-recorded greetings to scheduled Zoom visits to fully immersive virtual adventures like Macy's Santa Land at Home, the Santa surrogate industry got creative last year. Well, this year, as many people and organizations return to in-person Christmas celebrations, there's one crucial figure who may be absent— We've got a Santa shortage, people. Like other shortages, it's a combination of high demand and COVID-era supply issues, if you want to call working Santa surrogates supply. The high demand is simply the effect of people being excited to gather again this holiday season. and The demand has not just bounced back since 2019, in some markets it has exceeded recent years. And then there's the shortage of Santas. Like other industries, Santa surrogates have chosen not to return to work this season or to retire early, for a variety of reasons. Chief among Santa surrogates is health. Many of them, often older, heavier-set men, are high-risk, so being asked to attend a highly populated, often indoor event where they may be handed dozens of small, unvaccinated children crying and slobbering all over them is not a risk they're willing to take. Others are finding ways to make it work, only saying yes to events that require vaccinations or only working events at venues they've worked with before and feel they can trust. But the number of Santas who are sitting this one out has led to a real problem for anyone looking to book a Santa surrogate. Quoting the Wall Street Journal, As president of American Events and Promotions and founder of a professional Santa school in Denver, Susan Mesko says she currently has around 3,000 men in her Santa network. She also has 200 women and says Mrs. Claus is increasingly getting solo bookings. Earlier this year, she knew there was going to be a problem. Ordinarily, she books 15 or 20 Christmas in July events. By late February, she says she had already booked 70. The pace has only increased since October. Ms. Mesko said most weekends in late November and December booked up months ago. Of the 43 Santas she works with in Denver, they are all locked in from 8 a.m. until 9 p.m. every weekend until early January. Clients who didn't book early have had to be flexible. Some ended up with a visit from Santa before Halloween, while others locked in less traditional calendar dates, end quote. Mesco also told the Wall Street Journal that in her 39 years of booking Santas, she's never had to turn this many customers away. And though Mesco isn't accepting offers from people trying to pay extra to get a Santa when none are available, individual Santas have upped their prices, aware of how in-demand they are. Mesco says that Santas in less populated areas make about $80 an hour, while Santas in bigger cities can make several hundred. But on average, according to Brian Wilson, vice president of communications for Santa for Hire, Santas are charging about $50 more an hour this year. So if you are trying to book a Santa this season, you're probably out of luck. Folks like Armando da Silva, the recreation supervisor for the city of Hanford, California, started trying to book a Santa back in July and still had trouble. That said, I was recently pleasantly surprised to learn that mass-manufactured Santa suits aren't quite as expensive as I thought they'd be. You can get one good enough for photos for under 100 and nicer versions for under three. So if you need to put on the red suit yourself for an event, something I'm sure all of these professionally trained and schooled Santas would balk at, but hey, desperate times, then just know it's an option. But uh, maybe read the fine print on any business cards you find in the pocket before you don the suit. You don't want to miss any important clauses. Well, that is it from me for this week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.